Hi, before the show starts really quickly, I need to tell you that I recorded this hours after I really found out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. And I think uh, there's some opinions I'm going to give you in this first this first segment that have changed. Over the preceding days, I've rethought through that, and I'll talk about it on another episode later or maybe do a special on this because uh, it's a big deal, right, what's happening in the Supreme Court. Uh, so there are some things coming up here on the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat take that I no longer believe. And before the show starts, I want you to know that. And then again, I will come back around at some point soon and clarify my actual position. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. Here it comes. The President of the United States has pitched the idea of teaching a patriotic history. It got me thinking, if I were in control of the history curriculum, what would that look like? I'll we'll talk about that, but we have to start here. There's an opening on the Supreme Court on this week's Cora True Act Show. said a ton of times that I love teachers. I think their job is quite hard and they're very important. I love teachers and can't stand our education system. And that's a hard balance to have where you actually do appreciate those that are working in the system, but the system itself just seems almost unfixable sometimes. And we're going to walk some of that ground today. But of course, we can't start there. We have to start with the biggest story, the most important thing in the political world. And it has ramifications for every American. The fact that we have an open Supreme Court seat, we will talk about that in just a moment. First, my name is Corey Truax. We're dedicated to smarter, deeper, and better talk here on the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk or wherever you find the podcast. I also get the privilege of serving as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday morning in Greenville, South Carolina. And you are invited out on my podcast feed as well, you can find the last two sermons in the Gospel of Mark series, and I hope that you will go find those. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, last week, I believe that was Thursday or Friday, was announced dead uh, after a, another battle with another type of cancer. I think this was pancreatic cancer at the age of 87. Before her body had the chance to get cold, political battles began. On every side, no one took a breath, not left, not right, not even people that I really associate with myself. And I I think of myself as the actual conservatives. There's a, a lot of people that call themselves that, but they don't mean it. I mean the people that are a lot like me. There was not a break. Uh, immediately, the implications of an open Supreme Court seat got onto everyone's mind. So I want to give you three things on this, and I want to move on and do something else. I want to give you my prayer what should happen, and what will happen. My prayer, what should happen, and what will happen. First, my prayer. When I saw it, I actually do recall making an, like, an out... I made a noise out loud. It was, oh, no. Because I, I know the potential of what could happen here. I almost pulled the audio of this, but it seemed a little bit egotistical, maybe even, I don't know self-infatuated to press the button on me saying something. Like, I was going to pull audio from a previous episode of my show when Ginsburg was announced sick months and months ago, maybe a year ago, and said to pray for her health. And some of you didn't like that, that I said to pray for her health. And my heart then was a desire for peace. Because we, we all saw what happened with Brett Kavanaugh, right? When, when that was a seat, uh, trying to replace somebody who was not even... I guess that's not the Scalia seat, but my point here being it wasn't even replacing a liberal. 
it was keeping the uh, the status quo on the court. And the left did go insane. Almost to the level, uh, I think I called some of the behavior at that time demonic. It was an, a, a really hard time to live in the United States of America that fall with the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. And knowing how divided we are, how much of a tinderbox we are, uh, everything's quite volatile. I thought this would be a really bad time for this. And I stand by that. I mean, here we are weeks from an election, seven weeks, whatever it is, six weeks. And having this happen is troublesome. It's hard because there is such a lack of peace in the country anyway. And so my prayer still at this moment is, Lord, give us some peace. Let, let this not be something that sets up even more volatility and conflict amongst Americans. That is my primary prayer, and I would ask you to join me in that. We do love peace. We're not brawlers. We, we're, not looking for, we're not looking for fights. We're not looking to start them. And in this particular case, I'm talking about real fights. I'm talking about unrest in the streets, and it would be a, be a tragedy for this to start that. But what we know... So that's my prayer, what should happen. What we do know is that the court, unfortunately, the courts have become the centerpiece of government. They're in charge. Not Congress, not the House and the Senate. And it's one of the reasons the presidency has become even more important because as Congress, which is supposed to be the, the most important of the three co-equal branches of government, as they get only interested in winning elections, their only purpose is winning elections. Not a single one of them wants to accomplish anything except win the next election. And one of the ways to do that is to hold issues up. You need to not solve them. You don't need legislation for them. You need to just be able to run on the issue. If you actually solve a given issue, then you can't beat your opponent over the head with it. And so you have incentives for those in Congress to not do anything. Don't solve anything. Just keep winning. And so they are willing to uh, outsource, outsource their power, outsource some of the governance to the executive branch a body of regulators. They're willing to let the courts do a lot of their work because the members of Congress and the Senate mostly are cowardly and only want to keep winning elections no matter the cost. And so the courts are too powerful. The Supreme Court is much too powerful. It is truly become the, the emperors. They, they have lifetime terms. And once they decide something, it's decided. Maybe... Decades and decades later, you get a, a case to try to overturn a previous case. Whereas, you know, executive orders, when presidents come in, the next president can just undo it. As an example, we're going to get into later. The president wants to start this commission, the 1776 Commission for Patriotic Education. All right, all right, you start it. If you lose the next election, Joe Biden just comes in and ends it. That's all that happens. So you, you can undo executive orders through elections, uh, even when regulations, all the different... The, the ways that Congress gives its power out to the regulators, which I call the fourth branch of government, is the alphabet soup of organizations throughout Washington, D.C. Well, from one president to the next, from one administrator to the next, those rules and regulations change, and so they don't have as much permanence. When the Supreme Court decides something, it's permanent. We don't have any chance to get rid of it for, for likely decades and decades and decades, if ever. So what one thing that should happen is that we all recognize that on the left, right, and middle and start trying to minimize the power of the courts. There's very specific ideas I have for that, but we should be looking to have more of a check and balance on the courts. Like even having the Congress check the 
the courts sometimes through impeachments or censures. Uh, there's a couple other methods legislatively, but that's one. That's what should happen. Now, what should happen with the open seat? I am, I have this great advantage of this thing where I'm consistent. It's almost laughable to me. Like I, actually it was laughable. I actually did start laughing just on my, on my couch, watching a football game, scrolling through social media for a second, which I stopped doing, praise the Lord for that. I don't really just scroll social media much anymore. Seeing people on the left posting memes from Republicans back when Merrick Garland was nominated by Barack Obama to fill a seat on the Supreme Court. I think wow. Antonin, I think that was Antonin, Kali, Antonin Scalia's seat. And Republicans were like, no, no, Obama shouldn't be able to do that. And we're, we're, we're going to wait for the next election because the American people should have a, a say in this. And the left was calling Republicans hypocrites. And then the right were posting memes from Chuck Schumer and other Democrats about uh, the, saying the exact opposite. And we, we've, uh, we've confirmed judges... Uh, during presidential election years, this many times, and that was Chuck Schumer sharing a meme on uh, on Twitter and Facebook at the time, and now Chuck Schumer says, absolutely not. And so the left and the right telling each other how they're so hypocritical between Merrick Garland and now uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat, and to which I say both of them, girls, girls, you're both terrible, okay? Stop fighting. And you're both right. The right has utterly changed their minds. They are hypocrites. And the left has utterly changed their minds. They're utter hypocrites. And then there's me, who said the same thing both times. I said of Merrick Garland, he should get a vote. And he should be voted down. Republicans had the Senate at the time. You had the power to put him up for a vote. And you had the power to vote him down. He didn't have the votes to get through. Unless you had a bunch of Republicans defect in which that would have been the, uh, the Republicans' fault, and those Republicans should have been primaried and, 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 beat, and, and taken down. But guys, there was like eight months left of the year. Most Supreme Court confirmations take three months, three to four months at the most from when you get an opening to, f- to filling it, maybe three months from when there's an actual uh, naming of a nominee. And it should take time. If we're going to give these people lifetime appointments, we should go slowly. That's important. Because they can't lose their job unless they get impeached, and we don't really do that. So let's be really careful. The president should be super careful about who he puts forward, and then the Congress should be really careful about making sure that person is the right person. So it should go slow. But my position at the time was, of course, Merrick Garland should get a vote. Obama's nominee should get a vote, and they should vote him down. Equally, Trump should nominate somebody. And if there's there's the votes for it, then vote for or against that person. But there should be there should be a vote. It, there's there's still time for it, I guess. It's uh it's September. I don't think there's a time for it before election day. I would have let me say that really clearly. There is not time to responsibly vet a person for the Supreme Court before November third. Six weeks is not enough. That would be the wrong thing to do. But technically, Donald Trump is president at least until January 20th. And so, you, if you start the process right now, and then he wins his re-election on November 3rd, then we, the process continues, basically. And so, you, you can keep moving him through. And if he loses, then technically, the Republicans could still, in the Senate, could still name, uh, could still confirm that person 
And if we get to that bridge, I'll cross it when we get there about whether or not they should uh, and the ethics of it. But yeah, the president should put someone forward and he should get a vote. And Merrick Garland should have gotten a vote. That's how that should have worked. And I would have just said to Republicans, vote him down. And I would, as I would say to Democrats here, there, there should be a, a vote. And if you don't like the person and you think that person shouldn't, is not qualified for some reason, then vote him down. Find the votes. There, heck, there's plenty of mealy-mouthed, uh, no-spine Republicans to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to defect. At, at some level, I, I wish the president, maybe for the sake of peace, wouldn't name one until after November 3rd. Like, you don't have to actually have the nominee to hang it up as, an, uh, uh, as a campaign issue. Because now it's probably going to be the chief campaign issue. And if he puts up Amy Coney Barrett, which who would be my choice, or Mike Lee, he could actually look at conservative people and say, look, I'm giving you what you want. you got to show up for me. But even just holding that person out for now and just saying, we have an open seat, do you want me to fill it or Joe Biden to fill it? That's still effective. Really, it's effective for both of them to, to uh, motivate their sides. So um, that's what should happen. What will happen, the president's going to nominate somebody. Republicans are going to start the process. They won't get it done before Election Day. And then whoever, whoever wins the election will determine what happens next. And if it happens to be Joe Biden, that's going to be a really weird conversation to have about what happens with the nomination process for that person. I'm finished with it. I didn't even mean to, to spend that much time on it. When we come back, I want to talk about teachers, the education system, and the president saying he wants a patriotic education system, and the folks on the left wanting a 1619 project type education system. We'll go through that when you return for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you find the podcast. Thank you for listening. I am grateful when you do. Find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you look for me, you will find me there. It is quite easy to do, and I hope that you will. I am a fan of teachers. In another world, I think, or in another life, if we believed in such nonsense, I think I would have been one. I think in part that's the role I play on this show. It's the role I get to play at Beechwood Church. I enjoy getting to teach each and every age level. It's, it is in part also how I've made my living. Ultimately up at North Greenville University and all the things that I do, it, the, the skill the Lord gave me it didn't give me many, but one that he gave me is I can take mundane things or seemingly mundane things and make them interesting. And I can take complicated things and make them simple. Those are the two skills that I bring to the table, primarily when it comes to rhetoric and rhetorical flourish and ability. And so when I think of teachers, I have warmth in my heart around them. Maybe not as much at the high school level, but in college, they're some of the most significant people. I I have very significant memories of Dr. Cheryl Collier and Dr. Becky Thompson, Dr. Greg Bruce and Dr. James Washick. These are people who influenced me. Dr. Paul Thompson and Dr. Jeff Cook up at North Greenville University. These are folks who influenced how I think, not just some stuff I know, but how I compute and cognate my cognition and how I explain things and my communication skills. Teachers are important. There's actually Cool study out of the University of Purdue, or Purdue University. They studied a few years ago, uh, 30,000 college graduates. They wanted to uh, test for things like this. Do you like your job? 
Do you like how fast you're being promoted in your job? Are you satisfied with the amount of money that you make? Are you satisfied with your relationship status? So basically, if you wanted to be single, are you single? If you want to be married, are you married? Are you satisfied with your uh, your relationship to children? As in, did, did you want kids or not want kids and have you fulfilled that? What's your relationship to your home ownership? Uh, and if whether or not you wanted to own a home and do. And these are not the things that necessarily make up joy or longstanding happiness, but they are indicators of happiness. And Purdue University was trying to find an answer to the question, what are the themes that will lead someone to being able to say yes to those questions and, and that show they're satisfied with their life? In regards to specifically their college experience, and one of the things they found is the people who said they were most satisfied with their lives had a correlation between the people who said they had great relationships with their college faculty. There was a relationship between teacher relationship and happiness later in life. So if you're listening to me, and I know I have actually quite a few teachers that listen, I hope you know this, you're really important. You may not know how significant you are to, to students and what you mean to some subset of students that you will, some subset of students you will come across in your life. So while I do love teachers, I also need to say this, I am so disappointed in the education system. I recently saw yet another study that showed it was about half of Americans, of actual American citizens, could pass our citizenship exam. So the exam you have to take in the end to become an American citizen, there's a bunch of folks who were born here that probably salute the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance and they say they love America and don't know enough to be a citizen because the system failed them. So a lot of times it's not their own fault. The system failed them. I am disappointed in the education system because it becomes more and more clear to me that you can make it through the entire system and not know some fundamental things about your country and your history. I'm disappointed in the education system in that we, we're looking out at a world that's becoming more and more highly technical. China, Japan, they've taken steps. Germany's taken steps to prepare children with some skills they're going to need for a very digital and technical world, and we just don't seem as invested as they are in it. And so here I am, I, I like teachers. I just don't think we've done a, even a decent job with education. And that rolls around then to this discussion we're currently having, at least ha something of a discussion, where the President of the United States was recently responding to something that's been happening in the education system. The New York Times produced, I've, I've discussed on the show at least three times already, produced this project called the 1619 Project, wherein it postulates that the beginning of the United States was not 1776, the beginning was 1619 when the first slave arrived here. And then it endeavors to tell the entire American story only through the prism of race, as if nothing else ever happened and nothing else ever mattered. There's only ever been racial strife and equity, and that's the only story to tell. Beyond just getting some of the facts wrong, and they do, the, for example, I remember one of the incorrect pieces of information disseminated in the 1619 Project was one of the reasons the founders wanted to separate from Great Britain was to, in, uh, to in, insulate themselves from ending slavery, that they thought they might see in the, in the offing in the, in the British Empire a... Uh, an abolition movement, and so they wanted to separate for that reason. 
Yeah, we we know that's not true in that the actual Declaration of Independence, when when itemizing all the reasons for the separation, Thomas Jefferson actually mentions King George being a slave trader. One of the reasons we want to get away from Britain was the the continuation of the slave trade, the way the Brit the British had had done that. It's literally in one of our founding documents. That's one of the reasons that we wanted to separate. So. The, that's just factually incorrect. And there's plenty of other factually incorrect things there. But maybe the more important message of the 1619 Project is there was a movement, at least in some parts, of history curriculum makers that wanted to emphasize ways in which America is bad. That America is this bad place. That its net effect on the world is evil. That its roots, down to the roots, that's a it's an evil place because the, there is an agenda among some folks on the left to say, no, we don't want to reform the system that creates what we're actually saying is the system is rotten to its core and we should tear it up. We should break down the core of the country. The nation doesn't deserve to live because of the ground on which it was built. That's the 1619 Project people. That's not just factually wrong. It's also morally repugnant. It's evil. And so... There's a response of, of trying to... Uh, to uh, the, so you got people trying to teach history in that way that seems to inculcate a resentment of the country. That we are actually sending some kids to school to be told their country is evil and bad, they shouldn't like it, and they should want to tear it all down. So in response to that, the president comes out and says, we are going to have the 1776 Project. And he is going to, through his executive order have a, a commission to get ready to celebrate what will be the 250th anniversary of 1776. I was trying to come up with what that's called. It's not called the Bicentennial. It's got to have some name for 250, but I don't know what that is. So the, uh, the president wants to do that, but in his comments, he said he wanted a patriotic education. He wanted to teach kids a patriotic education. And some people got on the internet and you know, on the media, got very angry about that. That, that. that was, it sounded to them, like they said, that everyone loves to go to Hitler. I think it's, a, it's very unproductive. It might be called Godwin's Law. God, Godwin's Law is a, a law in rhetoric that whoever mentions Hitler first loses because there's only the one Hitler. There's the one. Let's, let's, stop talking, let's stop talking about everything like it's Hitler or even anything like it's Hitler. There's only the one. In any event, so we, they started talking about it like Hitler and Hitler Youth. It's, it's actually much more Stalinist than it is Hitlerian. That was a very Soviet thing to do. It's a very North Korean thing to do now. To create a history and to tell a history that is trying to create a loyalty to the, the land. Loyalty to the country. And in that case, it's loyalty to a government, a loyalty to a family that runs things, because that tends to be how the communist systems works. It ends up being uh, the party. You're loyal to the party. You're loyal to this, to the soil on which we sand, this physical land or this or the family that runs us. That is not to be equated to what it would be like in America. Now, I'm, by the way, I'm not for patriotic history. I'll give you my position here in a minute. If we did some kind of patriotic history... What we would be talking about is a fealty to the ideas. America has ideas. We are uh, coming out of the Enlightenment. We were a place of reason. 
We want to be a place of reason, liberty, uh, exploration, individuality, progress. These are the things, uh, the values we hold dear, the rule of law, uh, and then personal responsibility along with personal liberty. These are our values. And so that doesn't actually make you loyal to a political party or loyal to the American government or to a state government. It makes you loyal to ideas. And as long as governments and institutions are practicing those ideas and instilling those ideas, then we want to then have a patriotism around that. That's how it would work here anyway. So there was a freak out because it's, it does sound bad. I'll, I'll say that. I think it sounds terrible. A patriotic education to tell a whitewashed version of your country's history for the purpose of trying to inculcate in kids a loyalty to a government or a political party? That sounds horrific. That sounds George Orwell 1984 stuff, and the president shouldn't have said it. Now, the opposite thing shouldn't happen either. We don't tell kids that the country is built on white supremacy. That's just garbage. There, there isn't the data to build that. That's not the idea that founded America. It's not even one of the top 10 ideas that founded the United States of America. It is destructive to say that the United States has been a force for evil in the world. It's also a lie. We have been the greatest national force for good and human flourishing. So you have one side saying we want to teach that America is evil. We have, this, we have the president saying we want a patriotic education, which is a bad idea. And it led me here. Well, man, you complain a bunch. You don't like the system we've got. The president's got it wrong. His enemies have it wrong. What would you do? What would you teach if it were your decision? I want to give you one quick word for my South Carolina listeners. I actually did take the time to go and find the social studies curriculum standards for our public schools. And I must say, I was actually quite satisfied. What I know is happening is that we are not teaching to those standards. Whatever's happening in our classrooms broadly, we are not getting to the South Carolina standard because the South Carolina history standards, social studies standards, they're strong. That's exactly what we should be saying. The content was there. But I, I deal with high schoolers a lot, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's in the standards like that I read, but those high schoolers don't actually know the stuff they're supposed to know when I read the standards. So here we go. I, I might spend the rest of the show on this, I don't know. But here's what, what I think we should be doing when it comes to teaching our kids history. Not patriotic and not unpatriotic, but the truth. We just teach whatever the true thing is, whatever the facts are. I would argue if you teach the truth about the United States and its history, the byproduct will be a patriotism. I think you will have a love of this land, a love of its founders and the ideas that brought it to be. You will, at the same time, if you're told the truth, it will inculcate in you a love for this land. It will also inculcate in you a recognition of the danger of, of humanity, that people can be evil. Groups of people can do really bad things. And we, mu we must both be on our guard against those people and then also celebrate the opposite. That's what the true story of America will do. We teach all the facts, the good ones and the bad. And then we, and then we, 
we teach our kids to be critical thinkers that, no, you're, you shouldn't have a veneration for your country that you think is perfect, but and everything, the wellspring of all good, and you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have a, a, a impression of your country that it's evil and it needs to be destroyed. You should just know all the facts, and on the scales, it has been incredibly good. We teach them the bad. We say that, yeah, the world in which the United States was birthed into was a world that included slavery. Americans didn't invent it. We didn't do it. It, it was around when we got here. And so it was an institution that continued here, and it took from, let's go 1789, when we actually uh, had the Constitution ratified to, seven, to the 1860s. So a, a long while, almost 100 years, to, do, to deal with it. Tell them the truth that we had natives in the southeast, particularly in Georgia, where we decided we're, we are going to expand. This is our, it's going to be ours now. This land is going to be the United States of America. Some of that was through actual war so, and actual conflict. So that's wars of conquest and the to the winner does go the spoils. It's how the world has worked for forever. But then in those agreements with native tribes and leaders, often violating them, often lying. And as I believe Andrew Jackson is responsible for marching people to a new land and and treating them in a way along the way where we don't actually know how many of them died in the Trail of Tears. We sh- they should people should know that. People should know that we, we do teach that in, in the world in which the America was birthed was a world of bias and racism. Racism is part of human nature. And when America was birthed, we had ethnic strife. It was one of the things we had. And it continued even past slavery. People should know. Yeah, we teach, we teach that. We teach it not as unique to America is the point. We teach it as just one of the things that humanity does all over the world. And this was the American iteration of it. We teach... I don't mind teaching this, that we're responsible since 1973 for us getting close to 70 million unborn children killed. And we should talk about that thing we did, this mass moral depravity that we're responsible for. And kids should also know that America changed the world no question for the better, and the scale isn't even close. They should know that once capitalism was instituted in the Western world, particularly the engine of capitalism in America, that the rate of people in poverty over the last 250 years has been unbelievably diminished, more than any of us ever thought. That America is primarily responsible for disease, the diseases that used to kill people in mass that we were able to vaccinate against them and treat against them. They should know America is responsible for ending the scourge of Nazism in Germany and the, the, the end of the Soviet Union, for that matter, and the, the communism in that part of the world. They should know that if it's not for the United States, it was some stabilizing and some de- destabilizing forces in Latin America, that some of the corrupt communist governments there would have done even more death and damage and murder to their peoples. America's not just been good for itself, it's been good for the world. That we, we should tell kids, yeah, it's out of this place that we come up with a way to fly. We come up with a light bulb to run and, and run electricity and make hot rooms cold and cold water hot. We are that place. The 
rest of the world's entertainments and medicines and technology, communication, travel, transportation, that we are responsible for the vast majority of it. All of that's true too. And I'm giving you there only some material ways in which we made the world better. That doesn't include that the, the, the church here was so well protected and because of the opulent wealth of being an American was able to be unbelievably evangelistic around the world. That we were able to send missionaries for, for so long. We're not actually, America is no longer the number one sending country in the world. I believe that's now either, I think that's South Korea, sends more Christian missionaries out to the rest of the world than we do. But that's a proud legacy that we have. We have plenty of things, I guess, to have shame around, but we should teach kids both things because they're all true. All the stuff I just said in the last 10 minutes about America, the good and the bad, all is true. Just teach the things that are true. That should be our curriculum guide. And whatever emotions that instills in a child over their educational time, that should be okay. And I think if you teach it faithfully, you will create something of a patriot because the scales balance in favor of the United States being the greatest force in the history of the world for human flourishing and human freedom. When we come back, I have one more point I want to make about us and maybe how we should teach America because we need to know the context into which it was birthed. And then uh, we'll revisit COVID-19 because it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere all the time. And we, I have some updates I want to give you on my take on COVID. So we'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on His Radio Talk. Thank you for listening and wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm going to do this COVID-19 thought very quickly, and then I, I want to get back to the thing we were talking about. It's just this COVID-19 thing is short, and I want to get it in. I went to Walmart twice this weekend because I'm a fun person, and I like Walmart. I'm not even ashamed. That's, that's my kind of place. Very, uh, very, very well-run machine, Walmart is. And I noticed something. I wonder if this is happening where you live, especially those of you who are not in the upstate of South Carolina, because I have... I know on my podcasting analytics, I know with regularity, I have at least a few listeners in Texas. I know I have at least one that always listens in Tennessee. Uh, For my analytics, I know there is one in, there's a couple in Florida, a couple in Georgia. The one I was most thinking of, there's a couple others I can't remember, uh, and a couple overseas. But I know for, for some of you farther away, Minnesota, that was the one I was thinking of from further away. I wonder if this is happening where you're at, where you live. At my local Walmart here in the upstate of South Carolina, the world has changed. For a while there, they had someone at the front door counting how many people were going in and going out. That person's gone. They separated the entrance and exit doors. They were very serious about ingress and egress where you could only go in the indoors and out the outdoors. They had stickers on the floor telling you which way to go down each aisle and they only had one set of doors open oh yeah they also had a person out front enforcing the mask thing so they were out front as you were walking in if you didn't have one they'd ask you if you had a mask they'd offer you one so i went on friday a friday afternoon and put on my mask because i thought that was required and uh went in and did my shopping and I just heard, I noticed all that was gone. All those trappings were gone. And I went, I, 
did something happen? Did, did we hit some kind of milestone or phase thing? And I even Googled it, started looking around, and I can't find it. I can't find that we hit something. It was just like a decision made. And then I had to go back uh, after church on Sunday with my nephew, Caleb. Hi, Caleb, if you're listening, because he needed to get some, some stuff. And I found all that true again, and I just saw a ton of people walking around without masks, and actually Caleb and I walked around without them because we forgot to, to put them in the car before we left. And so I don't know what's happened, but the world is starting to feel normal. You, I'm starting to see f- football on my screen, and more and more I can hear v- the voices of fans in the stands. It's, it's not full, but it's there. My nephew, Reed, I'm thrilled about it, starts flag football, but that was a thing we weren't doing, right? We, we, we didn't want kids touching each other and then spreading the virus and then going to be their, their parents or grandparents. It just seems like things are getting normal, and I want to celebrate it and recognize it and then also ask the question, is that something you're picking up as well? Are you also seeing the world just starting to get back to normal? And is there, do you know of any reason for it? So that's the one COVID-19 thought I wanted to give. Just out of nowhere, things seem to be normalizing. Here's a thought I had. I get upset every time I see one of those citizenship test stories and know there's a bunch of Americans that just don't know enough. You know, even on, uh, on my Anchor app, uh, but which is where I distribute my podcast, I got a notification of a couple organizations who wanted free ads. They wanted all the podcasts on Anchor to do a free advertisement that just tells everyone to go register to vote. And then I had one also from an actual politician uh, that wanted me to run an ad uh, that, that would have been paid for getting people to register to vote. And I don't want to do those. Obviously, I don't want to do the free ones. That's no fun. But I don't even want to do the paid one because I feel like it is hypocritical. I've said on the show many times, too many people vote. Not enough people know things. And they think they know, and they go vote, and they're, they haven't done the work to, to, to walk into the booth to go do the voting. And so, then, so I had this complaint, this thing I say, and then I, I, I see people, they don't, there's not enough broad knowledge about how we got here and who we are, the ideas that lead to nations. And so I started thinking, I want to start going through some of that. I, I know a lot of you are smarter than I am. I know, I also know I know some things that probably most of you don't know. Not because I am smart, just because I picked it up along the way. It was important to me. I think it helps explain the world around us. It helps form worldviews more fully. And so I want to start doing that from time to time. I'm going to do that today, and I want to hear from you if you enjoy that. Because I'm about to go straight professor mode. I'm about to go straight into teaching mode here. Some stuff that I think everyone should know. And if you find yourself tuning out or uh, getting bored, I want to know because I won't go back and I, I won't do this again. So here we go. I think when you're teaching the history of America, you have to teach the context into which it was birthed. The same way that when we teach Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, you can't just teach Luke Skywalker. You have to recognize that there was an empire and there was a war before that, some kind of galactic war. And you need to know the rules of the world around him if you're going to understand him because... He isn't just born into nothingness. He's born into a context. And so America is a nation that was birthed. Birthed into a world that already existed the same way that most nations do. They are birthed into a world that already exists, and so they have to live in the world that they are given. So what was the world 
into which America was born. What were the ideas and the philosophies that got us here? Well, let me run you back. We have this thing called the Dark Ages. This is after the fall of the Roman Empire, all the way up into the Renaissance, which, happened, which started around the thir- somewhere in the 1300s. And the Dark Ages were a time where certain ideas really ruled, where you had the divine right of kings, there, there were royals, and the royals are in charge. They have all the property, they own everything, they might let you use some of it, but everything in their realm belongs to them. They are the sovereign king, and their sons will take over after them, and their sons after them, and the station into which you are born, the way in which you are born, you will stay there forever. If your dad's a blacksmith, you're a blacksmith. There is no breaking out of these things. And then also, not just political power, but in the religious world, most of the religions were joined to governments, and specifically were saying, you shouldn't read this for yourself. You, should, you don't have access to the scriptures or the truth yourself. It's only through us. So political power only through the royals and religious knowledge only through the church. And then there, there really was, a, the church at the time was actually teaching temporal life, the life on this earth. It is just, it's just cruddy. It's hard. It's uh, joy comes in the new world. It's not for this world. You should know this world is going to be terrible and it's always going to be terrible. There's no chance of it not being terrible. It is in those dark ages we get things like the Black Death. We actually have about five or 600 years of almost no human development in technology and medicine, transportation and ideas. It is the doldrums, the dark ages, even at the time. The music of the era illustrated that. The music of the era was particularly set towards the idea. It was Baroque. Well, one of the types was Baroque. The music was to be accurate, not for the purpose of beauty. It was supposed to be per- perfectly on uh, different theories, uh, metro- metronome theories and uh, the, the chord progression type theories. Everything was just supposed to go by progression. It was not supposed to be for the hearer to like it. It was just supposed to be technically proficient. The art of the time, equally as boring. It's supposed to be technically proficient, not particularly emotionally compelling. It was into that world that the Renaissance came. Now, in the Renaissance, the world was still class-est. If you're born, if you're born poor, you die poor. If you're born rich, you typically die rich. The world was still like largely immobile. There wasn't a lot of exploration happening around Western Europe. That's, I'm talking about Western Europe. That's where America's birthed out of its culture. And the world was largely stagnant when it came to power. Power was still quite centralized in the church and in royal families and governments. But it is in the Renaissance that we also have this thing called the Reformation. The Reformation from Martin Luther comes through and says on the religious side that there's access to God for every man. The church does get stuff wrong. We're actually going to have some debates with the church because you don't have final authority. The scripture has final authority and everyone should be reading their own scriptures. We start to get the the, the, the printing press of Johann Gutenberg so that literature can be distributed. And it wasn't the, the, the powerful church, the established church, it was the reformed churches that then start saying to all of the peasants for hundreds and hundreds of years who couldn't read, you should all learn to read. Because you, as a human, this idea of humanism sort of becoming a thing, you deserve to know, to be able to know for yourself, to study for yourself. 
And then the art and the music change. The art of the Renaissance it starts to, to, uh, to be based on what the, what the viewer will find beautiful. The music that is written at the time starts to have flourish. That's not as technically proficient, but that, the might, that might move the hearer. So the Renaissance and the Reformation kill the Dark Ages as humans start to awaken to their own individuality, individual liberty, their own individual agency, and the power they have over their own lives in the world. And that begins to grow into the 1700s with this thing called the Enlightenment. My favorite period in the history of humanity. Where the ideas start to circle because we became a more more, more mobile people. The developments in in seafaring, that we could get across waterways, that we could get across rivers. More and more development with what we could use to go around the countryside in terms of how the, the wheel was developed and with better materials. And so ideas start to flow, also flowing in the fact that we had a printing press and people were able to write down ideas and then distribute them. And the ideas, the enlightenment start to be things like reason. Truth is determined by reason. It's not determined by the king and the queen's declaration. It's not determined by the church's declaration. Truth is that which responds to reality and we will determine what reality is by our reason. We start to spread ideas like liberty, that you should be free to be you, not what your sovereigns say you should be. We actually start to believe that human life is so valuable that it should be good here. It shouldn't be good in just in the world to come, like was said in the Dark Ages. We want to make life good right this very moment. We started saying there should be exploration. There's a lot of world out there. Let's go find how much. Let's have progress. The world has been so stagnant. Why can't there be new music, new books, new ideas, new art? And you start to see that in the art and the literature and the music of the Enlightenment. And it was into that world, coming out of the doldrums of the Dark Ages, the rising of the Renaissance, and then the the taking of those the Renaissance ideas and turning them into a formula in the Enlightenment, it is into that world that the United States is birthed. That's its context. That that you have the ethic of exploration coming with the voyages of Columbus as he goes back and forth across the Atlantic. The conquest of Mexico by Cortez. That you had religious migration of the Puritans going to Massachusetts Bay Colony, I think, and then another group going to Jamestown to start something. That... There, there is this idea of going out on your own now and having liberty and individualism that was never the case before and then being able to spread that to other parts of the world. In this birth, the birth of the United States then crystallizes these concepts and ideas and principles like individuality. You are you and you are free. You aren't free to hurt others because that harms their freedom. And you're also responsible for you. So if you're going to be free, you must be responsible. So it was individuality, but then also balancing personal liberty and responsibility. We, get, uh, we crystallize the idea of the rule of law. That law is not what a sovereign says it is. The law is the law. And the people will decide the law. Through their republics and democracies, we will decide what the laws are, and the laws will then apply equally to all people. This was a big one of the Enlightenment, that as we work through reason and liberty and individuality and exploration and progress, we believe that when you do those things, you can accumulate property. And the property is yours. It doesn't belong to the sovereign, the king, or the church. It belongs to you. 
it became a mantra of the time that every man has a every man a king and every man it has his castle even if that castle is a little shack and it was into that world correcting for the world before it that the united states was born and ever since then we've been progressing towards those foundational ideas the foundational ideas of individuality, personal liberty, personal responsibility, the rule of law, and property. The world has moved through other philosophical times. We've moved through modernism and postmodernism. We've moved through times of, uh, the word I am looking for is transcendentalism. Other movements have moved through music and art and how we entertain ourselves. But the story of the United States is, it was the culmination of a story of coming out of the Dark Ages where institutions ruled, where you could not be mobile, you are part of a group, you're not ever yourself, and life at the time, they say, should, should not be good on this planet. It should be good in the next life. The culmination of that is people coming across the Atlantic to explore this place and to start building their own civilization. In all of the baggage that came along with Western Europe, all the, all the bad parts, is, is there too. So things like slavery, prejudice, bias, all, uh, un, some, some, sometimes people taking advantage of others not based on prejudices and biases. So I think I'll stop there. Yeah, that's a good place to stop. That's the, that's the place in which America was birthed. And so, other things I'd like to do like that. I think Americans need to know who Adam Smith is. Wealth of Nations. The birth of capitalism. I think people need to know Edmund Burke, that philosopher. I think people need to know Thomas Hobbes. That even at the time, there was discussion about the state of man and how we govern that. Is the state of man good? Is the state of man plenteous? Or is the state of man derelict? Is the state of man having nothing? And how do we build governments to respond to how we think about what the state of man is? We have discussions around the time with deist writers, like guys like who wrote Common Sense, I uh, can't remember his name right now, uh, in, the, in the more, not just deist, but actually Jesus-following types. If that's something you think we should do on the show, I, I need you to hear from you about that, because I think some teaching could be useful, but I could be wrong going back and teaching our history, teaching our philosophy, and from whence we came. If maybe I should just do it for like a kid's curriculum and you play it for your kids, I don't know. I just want to hear feedback from you. You can get me at CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. I am all out of time for this week. Thanks for listening to His Radio Talk and wherever you find the podcast. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, peace and love.